Hi, everyone. I'm Salma Qureshi. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's Neuroscience Research Podcast. Today is April 15th, 2021, and we're talking with Cameron Deba, who is Associate Professor of Anesthesiology and Biomedical Engineering and affiliated with the Neuroscience Graduate Program at the University of Michigan School of Medicine. Hi, Cameron. Hi, Salma. Uh, great to be with you. <laughs> Okay. So Diva Lab works on understanding the role uh, neuronal firing patterns and brain states play in encoding, storage, transfer, and retrieval of spatial information in hippocampal and cortical networks. Um, using a combination of computational and machine learning tools, statistical analyses, large-scale extracellular recordings from freely moving animals, and optogenetic and chemogenetic circuit manipulations, they get at single-cell and population dynamics during learning, recall, and sleep. So today in the Zoom, we've got Charlie Wilson, as usual. Hi, Charlie. Hi. And Francesco, Francesco Savelli. Hi, Francesco. Hello. So um, there's so many places that we could start, but I, I thought, I guess it's your, it's your background as a physicist that informs some of, the, um, some of the deep dives that you take in your work, looking across scales at big phenomena to get at mechanisms that might um, subtle disconnects in the literature. And I'm talking specifically two that come to mind are things like how important, uh, really is reactivation or, or replay in sleep consolidation or more recently, um, our theta sweeps, um, coding a temporal or spatial process during track running. So, so I thought a great place to start would be to get really fundamental here and have you talk to us about some of the connections between um, cell and circuit phenomenon like sharp wave, wave ripples in the hippocampus and preplay and replay and how they connect to the formation and stability of place fields. Because we've talked a lot about place fields here, but we haven't really talked about ripples as much and the sort of interconnections between memory ripples and, and, and spatial encoding. So I thought your study that you've recently put out as a preprint would be a great backdrop for connecting some of this stuff and talking about it. Um, yeah, well, there's a lot there in what you said, so I'm wondering, you know, which direction to go with it. Uh, I mean, in terms of the, 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 my background in physics, um, you know, I, I actually, I, I'm never sure, like, how much it helped me in, in some ways. Maybe it was in a way of just sort of thinking about problems and approaching them, but actually my initial intuitions weren't really um, you know, that they came from physics. I mean, I, I really went into my earlier work was doing biophysical modeling of like single ion channels. And my conviction at the time was that, you know, you really need to understand ion channels to understand neurons. And I'm not, not necessarily saying that's wrong. Uh, maybe that was actually a good first background into neuroscience was just you know, really getting into sodium and potassium and calcium and, and their dynamics and the effects of stochasticity and so on. But but I think once I, I kind of got a little bit uh, situated in neuroscience, I started thinking, oh, wow, I, I want to know what neurons are doing in circuits, you know. And so that I guess I felt like my early intuition wasn't what I wanted to follow up on. Um but yeah, so now like at the circuit level, and I mean, there's some really great people that come in from physics and, and done these great network models. That wasn't me, you know, unfortunately. 
but I, you know, but I mean, I started, um, and again, I think maybe it was just, um, you know, maybe I, I really got pulled in by the methodology, like, you know, and even now for me, like doing, looking at the in vivo recordings and seeing like a population activity across all the neurons and the network rhythms, you know, just even on your, your data acquisition screen is what really uh, just gets me super excited. Right. And, and people now on Twitter, you know, will post these snapshots of data they've collected. And it's, it's for me, that's the really one of the most exciting moments, but, uh, and, and for anybody that when you do record the hippocampus, um, and, and again, maybe it does vary depending on how you filter your data, but if you, you know, you hook it up to listen to these sharp wave ripples, I mean, they're really captivating, uh, listening and there's these events that are really prominent and pop up. And so, you know, your mind just instantly goes into what's happening there. Cause it sounds like really remarkable and same with the, the theta oscillations too. I would say, you know, you see it like the synchronized activity across all your cells. That's even before you do the decoding and, and look and see, you know, these fine temporal structures, right? You, but you just see like something that's dominating the recording, then it's just what's going on, you know, what's, what's happening in these uh, patterns. So um, I think that's been what's really driven, driven my interest, but fortunately there is a lot to unpack in all of those things. So it didn't, necessarily dry up you know um and in fact like a lot of people that that start in in hippocampus electrophysiology and so on you know there, there's kind of this idea that, well you don't want to con necessarily continue in that because now you're competing with your former mentors and so on so it's sometimes easier to or nicer to go into a new area that no one's ever explored using those methods but um and not to say that there aren't other regions or things of interest to me but i've always still been captivated by those things in the hippocampus, the theta and the ripple. So I, I guess even as I, I think I, I'm starting to think about some other brain regions I'd like to record from, but still sort of think about their relationship to some of the, the hippocampal oscillatory patterns. Um, so what, so, so uh, what are ripples and can they happen at the same time as theta or different times? Are they alternative things or... Yeah, no, they, they, they seem to be, I mean, uh, they essentially mutually exclusive brain patterns, right? So we either have the theta during uh, active behavior or during the immobility, we have the sharp wave ripples. I think the state can switch rather quickly between those two. So you might have, you know, you'll see grooming, for example, when the animal's immobile, you might see some ripples, but then there'll be a head scan that might generate theta. You can also get theta during immobility if the animal is freezing, but but they are sort of uh, uniquely they almost define the states. I guess I would say similar to sleep. When the animal goes to sleep, you get basically non-REM and REM, and they're mutually exclusive. And then the REM REM is theta, you know, dominant theta and no ripples. But then outside of REM, when you don't have the theta, you see the ripples. And the and then the cortical slow oscillations and spindles as well. So if you're actually watching and you get the opportunity to sit and watch animals perform in a environment and you're 
and you can see that just switching back and forth between theta and ripples. Ripples are not just when they're asleep, but also while they're actually moving around and doing things. Yeah, no, that, yeah, that is actually interesting that there is this parallel between these sort of two awake states. Uh, you know, some people call the, the ripple state LIA, large amplitude irregular activity. So you get LIA and theta during awake and then, and then the exact correlates during sleep. But yeah, exactly. I mean, I could, you can tell, you know, without looking if the animal's running on the track because you just see the, the theta everywhere. You can hear it. You can hear it. Too. You have it on speakers. You get so used to it that if you're in the observation room, you get distracted, you're looking at the monitor, but you have the rat running. I know when the rat stops because it goes from theta to this large regular activity and it's so distinctive that you just are like, the rat stop running. I need to go there and kind of prod him. And, Can uh, the rat hear it? Huh? Can the rat hear it? Well, you know, you have kind of the door closed, you know, between the observation room. I don't think you should let the rat hear that. Yeah, and just get everything in a <laughs> feed the loop and see what the brain thinks about the brain. <laughs> <laughs> so that it, when people are talking about place fields, they are mostly measuring place fields while theta is going on, not while the ripples are going on. Yeah, that's right. So when the, when the cells are doing the ripples instead, the place fields have been replaced by by what? How do the neurons fire during the ripples? Um, yeah, so, I mean, there is, there seems to be some cells that will fire still in a place-like manner uh, outside of theta. Um, these were, um, well, there's a different studies. There's, most recently, they've been characterized by in Lauren Frank's lab by Kenneth Kai. Uh, so he called them immobility cells, but I think they were also reported earlier by uh, Jezikowicz, if I'm not mispronouncing. She was working with Bill Skaggs. So, um, you know, they found these cells that are really active during what they called SIA. So that's you know, it's not the LIA part because the LIA has the, the ripples, but the SIA would be when the amplitude is a little bit lower, but the animals are still immobile. Um, but yeah, so it seems like there's some cells that are still active and maybe, um, maybe it's, it's, you know, again, it, it's a little bit hard to tease out from because the immobility tends to happen in very specific regions. Um, I guess maybe in an open field. Uh, so I, I, I have to say I've done most of my recordings on a linear track, and then what we what we end up getting is platforms at the end where the animal is resting, and then the center part where he's running. Um, so they are distinct locations. But if you have an open field, then I imagine you know you have probably the animals will rest and stop almost anywhere, and then you know because our animals don't like to stop and rest on the middle of the track. They get nervous there. Um, so, yeah, I don't know um, exactly, uh, you know, among the place cells, if the, if you have long immobility, whether the ones that would be loca uh, firing in that location, whether they get start to get suppressed and you get some maybe specific subsets of those. 
I actually don't know that um, about that. Maybe Francesco, do you? Uh... Well, I think it's it's kind of uh, until I believe those studies that you mentioned by Lauren Frank, it was kind of an open question, and I think it still is. You know, other than those cells, is that <clears throat> Charlie's question if if the cells stop fighting an encoding position because they get engaged into these sequences replay and then where is the information about position stored at that very moment? Where does it go? How does, when the animal starts running again and you go back to Theta, how do the cells know where to fire? You know, it's like, okay, if you have all landmark information, maybe you can do it that way, or maybe it's stored somewhere else. And, uh, you know, going back to the idea that places don't just do position, but they do this spatial framework on which you can, you know, that can be used in in multiple ways. And then there was that study, yes, the Lauren Frank. And um, and then you mentioned also Bill Skaggs from his lab when when he had his own lab about, um, I think, going from sleep to when the animal awakes, there are these cells that start firing in the position and you know it's it's fascinating, but I think we still do not understand very well where the information goes and how you know and, and you know we're only looking at one area of the brain. Of course, there are others, and um, all that is a little mysterious. Yeah. So, so can yeah. I, I'd like to take you back a little bit to your previous um, career as a more cellular thinker, and uh, I'm wondering, you know that. Sharp wave and the ripples, those are super complicated looking field potentials, really interesting. They must be generated by something. So uh, some kind of pattern of neuronal activity or afferents to the neurons, and the neurons are not quiet during that time, are they? They That thing must reflect uh, a, a burst of network activity in some neurons somewhere. What are the neurons yeah. doing that? Well, I think the, uh, I mean, everything that, that I've, uh, everything that I know refl- uh, suggests that they're coming from CA, the CA3 circuit. So the ripples, the sharp wave ripples are seen in CA1, but uh, the sharp wave part is in the dendritic branch of those neurons, particularly in the radiatum where you're getting the inputs from CA3. So the working model, and there's a lot of evidence to support it, is just that um, there, CA3 has a lot of recurrent connections within it. And so uh, during maybe these, these offline states like uh, where they happen, when there's less uh, input coming in from the enterino cortex, perhaps, although enterino cortex might, might act as a trigger for these events and maybe dentate gyrus as well. There's evidence from Jill Lloyd Gibbs lab about that. So uh, or possibly CA2, as uh, others have suggested. But essentially, once these events are triggered, perhaps by some subset of place cells in CA3, the connectivity and maybe a, a decreased level of inhibition ends up generating a, basically a, a big population burst. And so it's a massive dendritic input then into the CA1 region. And uh, probably, you know, actually there, it must be coupled with, uh, shunting inhibition as well, because it's not as if all the cells will fire, but somehow following that 
dendritic barrage, you get the pattern in CA1. And I should mention, even in CA3, you'll get those same, you get similar sequential patterns. So it could be that they're basically CA1 place cells are just, you know, inheriting that pattern from CA3. Um, so that's actually one interesting component of it is that if it's really internally generated, these sequential patterns, it seems like they have to be um, encoded probably during the, the, the place field, ex the exploration of the environment initially, right? And so my, my, my thinking of it is also that the cells get wired during that earlier exploration, this pattern gets learned. And then now uh, when there's a offline moment, it gets sort of re recapitulated and propagated now out of the hippocampus. Uh, so I think Isabel was made, a, I mean, I, I should have pointed out earlier with that, you know, one of the more interesting parts of these time windows is that it really seems to propagate out of the hippocampus now. And there's this work from uh, uh, Logothetis lab in monkeys where they did fMRI recordings and essentially the whole brain is, uh, you know, activated, locked to these uh, ripples. I mean, so the bold activity essentially goes up throughout the cortex. So it so really indicates that, right, it's, it's communicating with other brain regions, maybe bidirectionally. One of the interesting things, though, about the immobilization activity is, so, so what you just mentioned was that these sequences get arranged um, through exploration, and then expectation is where these, these signals arise from in, in the pre-play, for example, that you, that you showed us today um, prior to track running. So those are presumably based on expectation and they have some relationship ultimately to the firing rate that happens during the, the period of track running um, when you only have beta happening, right? So, uh, or in any case, yeah. then you see the replay at the end, which is a reversal of what you saw in the preplay. And so what, uh, what, how are those relationships resolved? What, what, what's understood about those in terms of how, um, interfering with these things could, could change expectation later? Or what are we, what are we thinking about that reversal, um, and, and the relationship? Yeah, there? no, it's, it's a really good question, right? Is that, I mean, um, because, for example, we, we, we think about these connections being formed during behavior or learned, but then, you know, what you're perceptively pointing to is that the actual pattern that emerges is different at different time points, right? So it could be reverse or forward, maybe planning or reward processing. So then why, why what makes it directional, right, in one case? I mean, I, I wish I had a great answer. I don't really know. I think it's a it's an important question and mysterious. It it sort of suggests that um, that there can be some almost cognitive element, right, to what particular pattern you see. Because my my first instinct would be just to think about these as okay, learn patterns like SC. You know, let's say you use some plasticity rule, you connect a bunch of neurons. And now let's say the forward sequence, well, you're going to get that because you trigger the first set of cells and then that's going to percolate uh, down, you know, this, this chain of uh, connected neurons. Um, 
And that would be probably my, my go-to model. And then I would think, well, why, how do you get the reverse actually? And it's a bit more mysterious in that sense, because, you know, we think about the forward direction connections being um, enforced by during behavior, during the theta. So then there should be actually, maybe if it's spike timing dependent plasticity, you would think that the reverse is depressed connections or you also might think, well, you know, the connection probabilities being low, they're probably not connected perfectly enough to for the activator to propagate back anyway. Uh, so that's actually, I, I don't think is a is a is a question that's been at least answered to my satisfaction. There are some modeling studies that have uh, investigated those scenarios, like how can you get both forward and reverse? Maybe there's two different kinds of plasticity rules at play. Maybe there's like excitability versus, you know, might might have an effect. Um, so I guess, you know, I would say maybe there's two aspects. One is maybe you can get these kind of patterns just simply from connectivity and some biases and excitability or inputs coming in from cortical regions. And I mean, probably it has to be there that, but then there's also maybe this, this sense that, um, that the kind of task demands uh, could be biased or could bias the hippocampal replay. Um, and if it's, if it's a task that requires, let's say prospection, then you might get more of that. And if you, if it needs more retrospection, uh, you might get more of that. Uh, I'll add one more thing. There's a, there's a, there's an interesting modeling work from uh, Matar and Da using a reinforcement learning framework to kind of explain why you see sometimes a forward sequence or why sometimes reverse. And the idea is that, you know, you need sort of these, um, these uh, updates of your action model uh, for an agent in reinforcement learning. And sometimes if you just get a reward, you might want to update essentially uh, your, your uh, representations for basically to update that, that this is a good location for getting reward, but you might get another type of sequence just because now you're you're in a different location, so the options that are available to you are uh, are what's more relevant than the immediate reward. I don't I don't remember the um, now unfortunately I don't remember these more recent work, but I remember like the very first I think it was one of the first maybe one of the first papers about the um, backward replay it was Foster and Wilson. The idea, one of the idea that they put forward is that these mice are reinforcement learning because if you do have, say, a spike of dopamine or some other reward signal when you get to the end of the track where you get food, right. now you have this um, um, spike of dopamine that then decreases slowly because if you do backward uh, replay, now the positions get rewarded in a, in in the opposite order, right? So the closer to the right. goal, the higher, you know, if something then associate value, which is kind of what you need in certain for certain algorithms 
for certain framework or reinforcement right. learning are more state-based or temporally based, I don't remember, but... I think called it the credit assignment problem, right? Is yeah, it? credit assignment problem. Yeah. So, um, you know, that was one idea, um, the theoretical interpretation of why the brain would want to do the backward replay. Um, it should be cool, but it's, it's not like... I mean, it's a reinforcement learning idea, not an episodic memory idea. Episode, episodic memory doesn't go in reverse, doesn't show the glass of wine rebuilding itself in midair after you've broken it. Or, I mean, this is something... Yeah, I think it's... Uh, <laughs> I don't think they related it... No, I don't think they related it to episodic memory per se. It related it to a possible function of... At least as far as I remember that. Um, but there are these, these sort of classic um classic tasks in human like basically learning lists of words and free recall uh, mike kahana did these uh, i'm blanking on the name of the the more uh, the the historic uh person who did the earlier studies i'll feel really bad after the talk but uh but but anyway they you know they showed that in free recall you do end up remembering nearby so the word that you just happen to remember from the list now it, it, there's a relationship whether you're also more likely to remember the word after it much more but you're also more likely to remember the word right before it you know relative to any other word so you so we do kind of have these forward and backward associations the forward ones are definitely stronger uh, but the backward ones are also there in in sort of episodic like memory um, I think an important caveat, um, and, I, and, and you know, I don't really um, do an analysis of um, replay uh, much. So the, this phenomenon is, is more like um, uh, described in terms of statistical prevalence. Maybe you can correct me, um, Cameron, if I'm not saying this correctly, but it's not like all the all the sequences are forward replay or backward replay or replay. Is that when you look at the sequences expressed during these ripples of play cells and you look at all the orderings, certain orderings, the you know, in the forward replay and replay are prevalent more than what you would expect by chance, or even much more than what you would expect by chance. But that doesn't mean those are the only. Um, the, the only orderings that you will observe during those events. And, and that gave rise to a big controversy, which I think, I don't know, I haven't really followed the latest, but basically the idea is like, okay, is this really learning versus these specific orderings are the consequence of the anatomical constraints of the network? So there is only certain sequence because the, it, the network is not an all-to-all, it doesn't have all-to-all connections, right? So it's not like every sequence is equally possible and the, and, the, and the topological structure of the network constrains which sequences you might be able to observe more likely than not. And then I think there is evidence that there is learning and maybe some evidence that, you know, also the network, the constraint might have a, might have um, um, an effect. So, you know, if you have during those ripples, you may have like positions, you know, logos of activity moving, um, moving randomly, for example, 
in 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 a cortical space say for example in by grid cells in mec maybe you can also find place cell sequences that they're not all equally probable likely and so but i don't know i'm kind of like speculating i know i'm, I'm entering a very controversial territory here and i'm not really the, the greatest expert so um couple of things uh i think it was murdoch <laughs> University of Toronto that did the earlier free recall pass just to save myself. Or, <laughs> <laughs> um, the and then um, so uh, and then one other thing that I, I guess related to that that I just you know maybe worth pointing out is that originally actually uh, Bujaki had suggested that you might see reverse replays just based on the the decaying excitability of cells. We don't no longer think that model is true, but it was a kind of interesting, and maybe it does play a component, by the way. Cells that are recently activated are more likely to stay active. So you might get a reverse replay just based on excitability alone. Um, but but going then to this question of like, right, uh, what sets up, you know, the sequence that's played out of all the possible combinations i mean it it may it does make some sense that you know not every you know there there are some existing connections between neurons so you might think that uh there is going to be some biases towards certain patterns versus others or maybe those ones are the ones that get superimposed onto an experience right like there's this work from sheena jocelyn's lab and maybe some others that you know, the, when there's a, from the amygdala, when there's a going to be a new experience that ends up involving those cells, actually, even the cells that end up representing experience were the most excitable ones, even prior to the memory. So it's almost as if, you know, which cells end up being the engram or the assemblies that represent a position where, well, those aren't just maybe random, they were actually somehow the mo the cells that were most ready that day uh you know perhaps because they they express crab or uh some other gene that that increases their excitability um but i will add that though to that that uh so there might be some of that but the 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 patterns that we see you know during awake ripples and i'll say particularly for those in a novel environment those ones, one, you almost get the feeling that they are the main thing going on. I mean, when you watch them, it doesn't feel like, oh, there's a bunch of noise and these ones are more likely than chance. It's just that anytime I see a sequence, it's a forward or a reverse sequence. It's really, it, you know, when you look at them and enough out of a population, it feels pretty clear like it's one of those two. And if it's not one of those two, it's maybe because it was like, you know, a partial replay or something. Because if those cells fired, they're firing in that order. And I don't, and I don't think that this is necessarily what happens during sleep. I think sleep is a lot more spontaneous, disordered, uh, all of the above kind of state. So it's interesting that actually replay was first seen in sleep, then in awake, because it's much stronger during awake. It's really strong um at least and again in the novel environment there was work from um uh from um, matthias carlson and lauren frank's lab when they had an animal on a familiar environment then they put it in a novel 
and uh, or actually it was the other way they had a novel maze and then they put the animal in the familiar environment and then in the familiar environment it was replaying the novel one right and so in in those cases right it's it, it seems like if the if there's nothing to learn here then the replay could be of something else and if you're only looking at the play cells in the immediate environment you're just going to say well this pattern doesn't correspond to anything particularly sequential um but in that novel maze it's like it, it's the dominant thing um i don't know what would and i'm guessing if you put it in multiple novels you know together you'll get well you'll get the replay of whatever is um it is in that moment uh, yeah rules out one of the first things i thought about about that awake replay stuff when I read some Lauren Frank paper was it oh boy this is this is actually planning so if you put an animal into an environment that it kind of knows but now it's going to try to figure out how am I going to get from where I am to where I want to be it just sort of imagines its path sees, oh yeah, that path would work and then takes off. But in that case, it would be stronger in the familiar environment where it's easy to plan your path and weaker in the novel one where basically you don't know enough to make a plan in the yeah, first place. Totally, yeah. That's what I was going to ask about. <laughs> so true. <laughs> and actually, there's I should say there's a couple of studies that, that really make us all scratch our heads and kind of um, one from... Uh, Gupta in, in David Reddish's lab and, and Matthias van der Meer recently had a paper uh, in, in um, Nature Neuroscience that, that so in, in, I'll mention Matthias's work where they had animals that basically went to one side of the maze for water and the other side for food. Uh, and some days they had animals uh, that were food deprived and others they were water restricted. So animals would be basically choosing one side or the other, uh, which is like a great idea to sort of see, well, which one are they going to replay? Now, granted, these were not, again, novel mazes, so maybe things get different in a familiar maze, but you can still see replay in familiar mazes, right? And what they saw on the hungry days, the animals would be replaying the water side, and on the days when it was choosing water, it would be replaying the food side yeah that's just the opposite of what i would have thought yeah so not totally not planning uh you know the one idea that i think reddish proposed to explain this kind of phenomena because he saw something similar was that well maybe you know the replays are helping to stabilize the hippocampal spatial map and so if you're going to one side then you want to make sure you don't mess up the sequence, you know, the pattern on the other. Although I have to say that I think uh, Matthias, uh, the Vandermeer study, sorry, the first author is Carrie. I don't want to take away credit there. Um, was um, they even saw it before, like the animal was put on the track. So, uh, you know, it, it's a bit challenging to fully understand what's going there my initial thought was like well maybe when you're eating you you start getting thirsty you know <laughs> i think we should mention uh the studies the sequence of studies by um well, brad pfeiffer in first david foster's lab now i think is 
in his own lab at uh, Southwestern in Dallas, um, where they used an open space, so a two-dimensional platform with multiple goal locations. And so then they characterized the sequences in two dimensions, and there was some evidence of that planning that uh, Charlie was wondering about. Sequences that kind of do this look ahead. Uh, I think if I remember correctly, um, going more toward the the goal location where the animal would go after. So kind of uh, consistent with the idea of planning, of planning your your path, path planning uh, to a goal location. And this was in 2D. So obviously, yeah, it was kind of very difficult experiments because they had to do a lot of sampling. You can imagine now everything is square, right? You know, because... You have so many more cells. You gotta, you gotta need and know many more sequences, and and um, and and so there are there are those studies that kind of speak to the to what Charlie was was asking. Yeah, that's right. I mean, right for uh, yeah, and I think that's probably the strongest evidence so far about that because in the two D, you know, you could imagine any possible um, path, and in fact, there was a recent work by from Joe. Chichwari's lab, Joseph Chichwari's lab, where they had animals just following sprinkles, chocolate sprinkles, so there was no goal. Uh, and in those cases, the replays during sharp wave ripple, those trajectories were random walks. Brownian motion was essentially the best description of them. Um, but then in, in Pfeiffer and Foster's paper, where animals did have a goal location, I think what they did was compared the the path right before to the path that the animal would took right after. And they found that the trajectory was, again, it didn't map exactly. So it's not, it it was never like an exact predictor of what the animal would do next, but it was closer to the the trajectory that the animal would, was about to take than, than the, the immediately preceding trajectory. So, um, which, so, yeah, I mean, there is some, you know, it, it, and I think that's been a little bit of the challenge. There seems to be some component that's planning. Um, there seems to be some, there definitely the reverse replays seem to be uh, triggered by reward. Um, so, uh, but but yet they're not always, it's not always this one or always this other one. And there's always studies where you see, something unexpected so i don't think we're we're quite there at where we fully understand uh, what drives the exact pattern that that gets to be replayed um, it's a great area for modeling approach and sort of combined and modeling experiment well but one fascinating thing though again it's still a little speculative but as we were um uh, well, as we mentioned during the uh, question and answer um, after your talk, is that it's possible that here we have some kind of neuronal machinery that is the same for like, you know, thinking about the past or thinking about the future and how, you know, planning the future or imagining the future and thinking about the past are maybe to the brain, they're much more similar than we think psychologically. And Absolutely. And and, you know how maybe it's the same, similar, very similar machinery, and and these you know, 
and planning. And I think, you know, people, people with hippocampus damage do have problems in planning and imagining the future. You know, if you say, imagine a scene like this, it, they have problems imagining a scene like that. Because, you know, imagine yeah. a scene at the beach in this condition, you know, you use the past experience to imagine the future. And so this idea that past and future, you know, to the brain is... Yeah, it's, it's, it's connected in interesting ways. Yeah, yeah. The, these studies on the amnesiacs are really interesting. Like, I mean, they, they just like they say, yeah, imagine yourself at a museum. What do you see? Like, they, they just the, the descriptions are fairly impoverished in comparison. I think they also ask them to do drawings, for example, and, and their drawings just have very few details compared to, you know, what normal people do. Um, so yeah, um, seems like, seems like if we have a map or, you know, maybe it again relates to the cognitive map theory of, of O'Keefe and Nadell, where if you have a map of, of, a, an environment and it could be, you know, maybe in, in other species, it's just a, a cognitive map of that's outside of just space, right? It could be cognitive map of a task, uh, for example, um, so now you have this this um, map, and you know um, you you know you use it to imagine, or to prospect, or also to remember what happened before. It's, it's amazing that we're actually out of time. I think we might have started late, though. But um, I, I wanted to just land a bit on this idea of novelty because. Um, I mean, just in terms of what you said about overlearned tasks uh, causing changes in reactivation patterns during sleep uh, learning um, and how you see a completely different uh, reactivation pattern depending on whether tasks are novel versus overlearned, right? That, I mean, a lot of that work is so interesting and I, I was hoping we could get a bit to why maybe it seems like there is some contentiousness about this idea of replay and, and how important it is in, in sleep consolidation. But, um, but just, I'm sort of wondering what, how much, especially when you're talking about integrating things into a larger cognitive network, um, maybe learning something new in a space that you know well, how much does something have to be novel, do you think, to be novel enough to, to have to be replayed, you know? Um, it's, yeah. it's a, I guess it's a bigger question about also just, it seems to me that the wake replay has very different dynamics in terms of novelty. Is that correct? So you don't, you don't, in an overlearned task, you still have strong replay or does replay degrade as you see it? Because you made this correlation between REM sleep and, and, um, yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I, is there a parallel there in terms of what replay is doing and whether it disappears once novelty is over? Um, it's, it's a, it's a good question and there's different, I mean, I think different people will say, maybe give you a different answer. Um, my, my take on it is that, yeah, you will still see replay in a familiar environment, but because behavior is very different. So typically the replays happen during, I mean, they happen during immobility, but in a well-learned task, you don't, animals don't stop and pause. Right. And so you, you, you'll see fewer replays. But maybe, you know, at least what we saw is that even as six days out or seven days out, at least the proportion of significant events stays the same. But the number of replay events goes down. 
So I guess again, and in, and maybe that's by the way, you know, when we're looking at sleep, we're also looking at essentially how many events there are as well. So, you know, in in that sense, um, I would say that yeah, probably. I mean, there is a change also during awake from more replays to less with familiarity, but. Um, whether that's the same mechanism that that gives you the replay during sleep, I I don't know. Uh, um, yeah, but uh, there was another part to your uh, question, I guess. <laughs> how how novel? <laughs> that's sort of just yeah. Uh, how maybe. novel does novel right? And I, I mean, I don't. I also I have to say I don't think it's purely novelty that drives it. Right. I mean, I think novelty is a reflection that that learning happened. Right. Or uh, if you have to learn a new environment, then there is active learning. So I do think I, I'm my my sense is that it, it is related to learning, but there might be different reasons why you might want to learn something. Although one interesting idea is that, well, maybe if something really novel happens, like. For example, even if animal is exploring a well-familiar environment, then it encounters something unexpected there. Um, that encounter might be replayed, but it might also be a accompanied by place field remapping, which would mean like entirely new place cells are representing now that environment. And so maybe the key thing is re that's required is remapping. That's an interesting possibility that we haven't yet explored. Or it just could be that, you know, that that's something unexpected, maybe a shock or some even pleasant uh, encounter might be enough to suddenly um, enhance replays, even in a familiar uh, environment. Well, thank you for joining us. This has been great. And uh, thank you, Charlie and Francesco and Cameron Diva. And this has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop.